How are we? We have a good Thanksgiving, everybody? Yeah, yeah it was good. I hope so. How about this? Let's, let's be honest real quick. How many of you guys are still working on your sugar high? You, you can, you can be honest. We're in church. You can be honest here. We can be transparent a little bit. And I tell you what, I, I had a great Thanksgiving. However, it's funny to me how we go on these holidays and we spend time with family, but yet it's kind of like vacations. I always need a vacation for my vacation. I always need a holiday for my holiday. How many of you guys, just, just honest with me, just, just be honest with me here. How many of y'all are just familyed out? Mom, right? Riley, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just me, but my mom always uses this phrase. It's called Nana tired. And I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I love my grandmother, but it is always that sense where Jordan and I were driving home after a long week and we've got a, an 18 month old in the back of the car and he, he did awesome yesterday, by the way, but man, going to, you just never know what you're going to get. And so you spend this whole week of crazy family and bouncing from house to house. And it's like, I'm supposed to be thankful yet the whole time I'm like frustrated <laughs> Because you're just so exhausted and then you get to this place and then you got to hop in a car and then you got to drive six hours back home and you're just so not looking forward to every bit of it. And in the middle of that drive, you're thinking, God, I'm, I'm supposed to be thankful. <laughs> Why do I not feel so thankful? And uh, so I hope you guys had a thankful Thanksgiving. I know I did. And was that a Christmas song? Was that, I think it was a Christmas song. How many of you guys have your tree up already? You're already there. You're shameful people. Shameful people. And my wife, I think my wife had ours up like two weeks ago, so I'm no one to talk. I mean, it was fully decorated at that point. So, uh, we are, we are very much into Christmas season in our house, and I'm thankful for that because I'm thankful for what that means for us. I mean, who would have thought, right? Who would have thought this savior of the world, this king of peace, was gonna come in the form of a baby? You know, I think we're oftentimes, we're hard on, um, the Jews at the time, I think we're hard on the, the people who were living in, uh, Palestinian, um, uh, Jerusalem at the time, because I think too, if, if we were in that same spot, I think, I think we were looking for a different king as well. I don't know that we would have thought that Jesus was the coming king. I, I don't know that that's where our minds would have gone. I, I don't know that that's where mine was, would, would go. Yet even so, God chose to save the world through an infant. That put on flesh, that took on our pain and our suffering, who went to the cross, paid our due penalty, and then rose again so that you and I may have life. How can we not be a thankful people? How, how can we not be a thankful people? And we, we have been set free, we've been given life, and we've been given everything everything we need. Man, I'm grateful for that. Are you grateful for that? Yeah, me too. I'm not, that's not what I'm preaching on, but I just, so, so if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter two, you may already be there. You may already be there. If you're not, let me just kind of pick you up in the story. Nobody likes to start a movie halfway through the movie, right? So let me, let me kind of pick you up where we're at. So in Colossians chapter two, right before that, what you have is you have Paul, right? We all know who Paul is. Paul is an impressive guy, right? He is really the first missionary of um, the Christian faith. And so Paul is on his circuit doing his missionary thing that he does. He comes to a town called Ephesus. And if you're familiar with Ephesus, it's this big, huge port city, uh, lots of people coming in and lots of people going out. 
And Paul is preaching the gospel there, right? He has received the gospel. Now Paul is preaching the gospel. And then there's just normal guy named Epaphras. Epaphras. Epaphras shows up to the town of Ephesus. He hears the gospel preached. He believes. And then all of a sudden, Epaphras takes the gospel back to a town called Colossae and Laodicea. And in that point, right, he takes the gospel, he goes, and he begins preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden, what you have there is the gospel of, Col- or I'm sorry, the, the church of Colossae is born. Right now let, now, let me ask you this. Who says that God can't do something out of just normal people? Who says that God can't do something out of you and out of me and use us? Right, Paphras is just a normal guy. I'm, probably, I'm sure he's probably a good dude, pretty good guy. Comes into a feed, or into Ephesus, hears the gospel preach, he believes, and then what does he do? What do you almost always do upon hearing the gospel? What's the first thing that happens? You remember that? You remember that time when you first heard the gospel? What, what did you do? You went and told somebody. You were fired up. I remember the first time that I heard the gospel and I actually believed, man, I, everything in my world was changed. I ran and told my mom and dad, I was seven. I said, mom and dad, I've believed in Jesus. I want to be baptized. Why? Because we do that out of our excitement for who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. And that's what Epaphras does. And so the church of Colossae is born. And then in chapter one, verses 15, Paul gives us a heavy dose of Christology. Heavy dose of Christology. In fact, some would say that this is the most Christ-centered book in all of the New Testament. I tend to agree. I tend to agree. Because what he does in verse 15, he says this. He says, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Get this in verse 16. It's for by him, all things were created. By the way, Jesus was in creation. Jesus was the one who created things that God spoke into creation. So For by him all things were created, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And get this, for him. So not all, not only were all things created by him, but all things were created for him. This is Jesus who saved your soul. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might receive all the glory and honor for all things. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile him to to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so what Paul does is he points our attention, he points our focus back to Jesus. He points him back to Jesus. What he says is that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3 says that he is the exact image of the God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God. Here's what that means for you. That means that all that you need on this earth is found in Jesus. Meaning everything that you need and that you could possibly want from God is not found in money. It's not found in success. It's not found in a relationship. It's not found in a marriage. It's not even found in a career, but it is found in the person and the work of Jesus. That's what Paul is drawing our attention to. And so then we get to chapter two and Paul, just this pastoral heart that Paul has, he comes to this people, this people who, by the way, he has not met, right? This is kind of his grand grandson, granddaughter in the faith, if you will, right? It's passed through Epaphras, it's gone there. Paul has not met them, but yet Paul still lovingly, kindly writes them. And that's where we pick up in chapter two. And he says this, 
For I want you to know how great a struggle... I mean, get this struggle that Paul's having, right? He says, for I know how great a struggle that I have for you and those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face. And then in verse 2, he does two things. And that's really where I want you to hone in on here, right? Verse 2, it says this, that their hearts may be encouraged. Paul says, the first thing that I long for you, the first thing that I want you to get is that your heart may be encouraged. By what? What do you ask? What, what, what would my heart be encouraged for? And Paul says, for who God is and what he has done for you in Jesus. See, I think it's, it's easy for us to sit here in the 21st century and then we can really get we can really get clouded in our circumstances, can't we? Now, life's hard. I mean, who's with me? Life is hard. Life is not easy. Yet what Paul says here is that our encouragement comes not from our circumstances, but through who God is. And through what he has done for you in Jesus. Remember, he's talking about the same Jesus who saved you is also the creator of all things. The very one in whom God spoke creation into motion. That's the same Jesus that saved you. The same Jesus who sustains the universe by, by his hand. That same Jesus is the same Jesus who is still actively saving. God's not dead. Jesus is alive. So why then do we live this life of discouragement? Why do we live this life just mumbling and going through the day? I, I remember several years ago where uh, we were sitting in our family. We had a, a, a terrible thing, tragedy happened in our house. And I remember thinking, what do we have to be thankful for? And I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, didn't, I couldn't think of a thing to be thankful for. And then it hit me. I have everything to be thankful for. Because I have Jesus. You have Jesus, the very one who created and sustains all that there is and ever will be, is the same Jesus who saved you, the same Jesus who is still saving. How can we not be an encouraged people? But you know what an encouraged people do? You know what encouraged people do? (laughs) I love that. Somebody said, what? I'm with you, man. Whoever that was, I love that. You know what an encouraged people do? They encourage others. They, they, They encourage others, don't they? You want to know why? Because encouragement spreads. Encouragement spreads. Once you've received encouragement, how then can you not give encouragement? Right? Encouragement spreads. And so let me ask you this question. If you're an, if you're an encouraged people, if we're going to be an encouraged people, how then can you also not be one who gives life to people, who encourages people? And so here's kind of a test case. When you're sitting across the table from somebody, or let's say maybe you're at at the office, you're at the water station or coffee station, I know you like coffee. Do people walk away from your conversation filled with life? Or has life been sucked from them? You know what I mean by that? Do they walk away encouraged? Or do they walk away more frustrated? Man, do they walk away with a kind of a jump in their step? Or are they walking away going, oh gosh, he just talked about another person. What is the object of your conversations? What's the object of your conversations? Are you a life breather or are you a life taker? 
See, because of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus, man, we ought to be the most encouraged people, but not only the most encouraged people, we must, we must, we have to be the most encouraging people. Listen, if, if you're not, who is? Think about that. If the people of God are not the most encouraging people in all of the world, who in the world is going to be? Is, it, is, the, is the world going to be? No, they're, they're more bent on getting theirs. Right? The, there's not enough encouragement to go around in the world. If we don't take up this encouragement, who else will? Who else will? So Paul says that they, his hope is that they may be encouraged. And second thing here in verse 2, that they would be knit together in love. Man, this sounds easy. It sounds easy. And I love the imagery here. How many, give me a show of hands. Who are my knitters in the room? Knitters. If you knit, let me see. I want to see your hands. Because I don't know much about knitting, but I appreciate you. Um, but I love the imagery here. I love the fact that what Paul is saying is that my hope for this community is that they would be knit together in love. That they would be bound. They'd be sewn together in love. Are we a community that's sewn together in love? Are we bound together in love? Could we, if you were to analyze us as a church, are we people who when somebody walks in our doors, do they feel the love of Christ? Does it exude out of us into them? Or are we more concerned about our preferences? Are we more concerned about the seat that we sit in or the pew that's mine? Do people feel welcomed? When people who don't look like us, act like us, think like us, or even maybe believe like us, do they feel the love of Christ? Or do they feel condemnation? Do they feel judgment? And like, I, I think what we have to think about as a community is... Are people loved by us? Like, bear with me here. Bear with me. What if First Baptist Belton was not known as First Baptist Belton? What if we weren't known for our buildings? What if we weren't known for how we do worship? What if we weren't known by our preferences? But what if we were known by the one who is love, who extends grace and love to others? Honestly, what if we were known as a people who were not traditional or contemporary, who were not a big building or a small building? What if we were known as a people who just genuinely, radically love people? What if we were known as a people who when, when, when visitors walk in, man, they, they weren't like... Feeling like, oh my gosh, where do I sit? I don't know all these people. What if we just embraced them like crazy? What if we embraced our community? What might happen? Man, what might happen if we truly love the way that Christ loved us? You know, I, I think it's interesting in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment that I give to you, this familiar command, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Listen, our love brings the credit, brings credibility to the gospel. The way we love one another brings credibility to the gospel. And if we don't love each other, how can we expect to love people who don't look like us, think like us, and act like us? Listen, what I think Jesus has in mind here, what I think he has in mind is kind of that Revelation chapter 7 kind of worship, where you have people from all tongues, all tribes, all nations, all gathering together and worshiping. Listen, that's going to happen. Let's step into that now. Let's step into that now. Let's welcome all people who don't look like us, think like us, and act like us. All for the worship of the one who is worthy of everyone's worship. Being knit together in love. Where we lay aside our preferences. We lay aside all of the things that we hold dear. We lay them on the altar of God's grace. So that we can extend love and grace to others. Third thing is this. That they would reach full maturity in their knowledge and love for Christ. Paul's hope is that, man, we as a people would reach full maturity in our knowledge and love for Christ. But here's the thing. I think we oftentimes get this mixed up a little bit. I think oftentimes we think that maturity means that we need to add more Bible studies to our life. That we need to add more knowledge to my life. If I just read the right books, if I do the right stuff, then I'm going to grow in maturity. But see, what I think Paul has in mind is a bigger picture of maturity. One that says, yes, knowledge. Let's grow in our love for God. Let's Let's grow in all of that. But it can't stop there. It can't stop, stop there. See, what, what our knowledge must always do is drive us to a devotion to Him. So you can't have knowledge and devotion over here. Right? They're not mutually exclusive, but rather they work together. If your knowledge of God does not push you to a devotion to Him, you've missed something. If your knowledge of God does not push you to love Him more and to love people more, then you have miss something fundamental in your knowledge of him you've missed something man if if your knowledge of god does not give you a more vibrant view of the world if it doesn't give you a more vibrant heart for the lost if it doesn't give you a more vibrant heart for people you've probably missed something Jesus says the greatest commandment is that you would love God and that you would love others as yourself. How are you doing in that? How do you, how are you doing in that? If you were to take, if you were to, to measure a scale, let's say from a scale of one to ten, one being, ah, we're, no, not too good. Ten being, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm knocking it out of the park. How are you doing at loving others as yourself? You can be honest. How are you doing? See, what I think what we've done is that we have overeducated our obedience to God. We've overeducated. We add another Bible study. We add this. We add another class to go to. We add another program into our life thinking that that is going to create in us more knowledge. And that knowledge, what Paul says, is that knowledge more often builds up and it breeds arrogance. It doesn't breed love. Right? See, what we've got to do is we've got to start working on not just the knowledge aspect, but the actual obedience aspect. And if you're in eight Bible studies a week, can you actually apply everything that you're learning? I know I can't. 
So what we've got to do is we've got to spend more time living in obedience to God rather than soaking up things of God. Because we've got to allow the things that we're soaking us, that we're soaking in from God to then live out through us in the world. You see what I'm, you see what I'm going with there? I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says this, to the degree that you grasp what Jesus did for you and rest in the salvation he bought for you, to that degree, this pattern of substitutionary sacrifice and love will be reproduced in your relationships. And you will be the kind of person that the world desperately needs. See, guys, the, the world needs us. But the world doesn't need the legalistic version of us. It doesn't need the arrogant version of us. It doesn't need the self-righteous version of us. It needs the Jesus in us. It needs the Jesus in us. And that comes... Not for more Bible studies, but it comes from understanding who God is and what He has done for you in Christ and allowing that to fuel you so that you can then love people well. It's living in abundance. And so, verses 6 and 7, Paul gives us kind of the how. Right? He, he directs us to the practical aspect of this. Verse 6, he says this, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul knows is that most of the people that he's talking to, if not all, have already received Christ. They already received this Jesus who is Lord, who is sustaining the universe. They've already received Him. They've believed in Him. And so then what Paul then directs them to is His Lordship. He says, he reminds them once again that Jesus is Lord. But here's the beautiful reality of that. Like, if you have any shot at living a life of being encouraged, if you have any shot of living a life where you're knit together in love, and if you have any shot at maturity, then what you've got to understand is that your life must be submitted to the Lord Jesus. It has to be. It has to be submitted to His reign and rule in your life. Because apart from that, the only person ruling on the throne of your heart is going to be you. And here's the thing. There's only one kingdom, there's only one king, and there's not room for you. There's not room for me. And so what we have to do as a people is we have to take self and say, self, you need to get up off this throne. You need to remove self off the throne of your heart and replace it with the only king, Jesus. See, that's our only shot at this. It's our only shot is if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is King, then I can then sacrifice my preferences. I can sacrifice the things that I love. I can sacrifice the things that I hold dear. All because why? Because I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. And neither are you. You see the freedom that that comes? People think that that's, that that's restraining. They think that it's binding. But let me just remind you guys, that is freedom. Living under the lordship of Jesus is freedom. I think about it. If Jesus is in, is in control, who is not then? You. And so you get to take a deep breath and say, you know what? The world is not up to me. This day is not up to me. What my kids do, what my grandkids do, is not up to me. It's up to Jesus. You see, like, it allows you to take a deep breath in life. And go, man, I... 
I don't have to control. I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to work out my plan and my whatever. Because Jesus is in control. And Jesus is working that plan out. And I can rest and trust in Him. And then it frees us then to be a people who can sacrificially love others the way that we cannot do if we're on the throne of our lives. We cannot do. And so Paul says then, so now you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Now he says, now walk in him. Well, what does it mean to walk in him? Notice that he says walk in him. He doesn't say walk behind him. He doesn't say walk beside him. He doesn't say walk behind him. He says walk in him. What Paul's drawing us to is an intimacy with Jesus. He's saying, look, if, if we have any shot at this, if we have any shot at loving people that don't look like us, think like us, and act like us, he said, then we're going to have to be a people who live in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Individually and corporately. We must be a people who are walking in Jesus. Walking in his power, walking in his strength, walking in his wisdom. In full dependence on him. Guys, we have to be a people who are walking in deep, deep intimacy with Jesus. Deep intimacy with Jesus. I love in John 17, Jesus prays specifically for this. He prays for his disciples that were currently there. And then, hey, guess what? He prays for us. Imagine that, that Jesus would be praying for us so many years ago. And what he says is he prays that we would be one with the Father just as he is one with the Father. I just want you to think about that. If Jesus prays that you might be one with the Father just as he is one with the Father, then that means that we ought to be walking in unity with the Father, in unison with the Father. That means we're asking him for every step, every move, every thought. We're taking it captive to obedience of Christ. Walking in the Spirit, so to speak. Listen, if we want fruit to bear in our life, if we want to bear fruit in our life, then we've got to be walking in the Spirit. Because that's the only way that that's going to happen. John 15, when Jesus is talking about abide in me, Abide in me so that fruit may exist, where fruit may flourish. If we have any shot at fruit flourishing in our lives, then it, it's going to be by abiding in Him, by living in intimacy with Him. We've got to be a people who walk and live and move and breathe. Everything that we do must be in Him. We must be a people who live literally in unison with Jesus. The second thing, I love this, this idea of walk brings about a daily choice. It brings about a daily choice. Like every morning when your feet hit the floor, your mind ought to go, today I'm walking with Jesus. Today I'm walking in Jesus, rather. Every day, every day that you get up on the floor, it's, it's a daily choice, right? And just remember, the Christian life is not a sprint, but it's a marathon, it's a marathon where we say every moment of every day, I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I'm choosing to walk in him because apart from him, I've got nothing. Apart from him, I've got nothing. And then lastly, to walk in Jesus means that we not only believe the message of Jesus, but we must embrace Jesus himself. Not the Jesus that we want, but the Jesus that he is. We must be a people who embrace not the Jesus that we want. 
And the Jesus that we want is not good for anybody. But rather it's the Jesus that he is. The one that who is the creator and sustainer of all that there is. The one who is saving. The one who is preeminent. The one who has created you not for yourself but for him. And how sweet a thing that is. We've got to embrace not the Jesus that we want but the Jesus that already is. And the result, I love this, I love the result of that. That you would abound in thanksgiving. That you would abound in thanksgiving. The word abound comes from the Greek word overflow. Are you overflowing in thanksgiving? And maybe, just maybe, that if you're not, it might be that you're not walking in Jesus. It may be that you're not walking in intimate relationship with Jesus. It may be that you're still on the throne of your heart. It may be that you're not making a daily choice to follow him, to walk in him, to live in dependence on him. It may be, it may be that you're still trying to control life. It may be that you're still trying to control your kids and your grandkids and all the stuff that comes with life and career and all these different things that we want out of life, it may be that you're not living under the Lordship of Jesus. And it may be that you're not believing that God's good for you is actually God's best for you. Because I think what happens is oftentimes we think that we know better than God does. My good is better than God's good for me. But what Jesus says is, man, when you're walking with him in intimate relationship with him, being filled with him, there's nothing sweeter, there's nothing better, there's nothing more fulfilling, there's nothing more satisfying on this earth. Because he is enough. And he's enough for you. He's enough for me. He's enough for our church community. He's enough for First Baptist Belton. And he's going to be enough for First Bab- Baptist Belton in the next hundred years and on. Jesus is enough for us. And so our encouragement, our love, our maturity, it must be motivated and fueled by our intimacy with Jesus. If we have any shot at this, guys, if we have any shot at being a church who truly loves people, not for the way that we expect them to be, not for the way that we want them to be, but if we have any shot at loving people as they are, then you're going to have to walk with Jesus. Because outside of that, you're not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. If we have any shot at reaching the next generation, we're going to have to lay aside our preferences. And we're going to have to go after them. Because Jesus is going after them. And just like Jesus saved you in your mess, He's going to save them in theirs. Remember, Jesus did not save us at our best. He didn't save us at our best, but actually at our absolute worst, when you were not a friend of God, but you were an enemy of the king. You remember that? When you were an enemy of the king? Maybe, maybe most of you don't. I, I don't know that I do. But I know that God's word is true and that what God says of me is true. And I know that I was an enemy of God and he saved me in spite of me. And the beautiful part of what God does is he doesn't leave us there, but he steps into our life and he begins cleaning up the mess 
Right? Like that's the beautiful part of Jesus is that we, we don't have to, we don't have to fix ourselves up and then come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and then he, he fixes us up. And in, and in that, the only way that that happens is through our intimacy with him. Through our intimacy with him. And so guys, we cannot expect to live lives that are full of encouragement if we are not walking in intimacy with Jesus, nor can we expect to extend love and grace to others that we are not, if we are not living in intimacy with Jesus. We cannot expect to be knit together in love if we are not living in the one who is love. We cannot expect to pursue the right spiritual maturity if we are not living in intimacy with Jesus. And certainly we cannot leave our preferences and sacrifice our ideals if we are not living in communion, deep communion with him. Guys, let's be a people. Let's be a people who love people for who they are because Christ loves them for who they are. And then we let Christ fix them up. Right? Let's be a people who are full of encouragement and who are willing and eager to extend encouragement to one another. Let's be a people who are pursuing maturity and not just knowledge and not what knowledge can offer us, but rather full of obedience. Walking in Him, filled with Him, fueled by Him, motivated all by Him. Let us be that people. Let us be, let's cast off the stereotypes. Let's cast off all those different things and let us be a people who love God with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. And let's be a people who love one another. Because there's nothing that I long for more than that. And I don't believe that there's anything that God longs for more than that. Let's submit to him. Let's walk in him. Let me pray for you. Some of you may not know this love of Jesus. And some of you may be in a place where, I mean, I, I really don't know the love of Christ. I don't know this Jesus who created and sustains the earth. I, I don't know this Jesus and I don't know anything about walking in this Jesus. And so my prayer for you today is that today would be the day where, man, you say yes to Jesus and not just yes to him, but yes to him every day of your life that you would submit to the lordship of him. And so if that's you, maybe it is, maybe it's not, I don't know where you're at, but if that's you, man, I pray that today would be the day where you would say, you know what? I don't care what people think about me. I don't care about opinions. I care about the one who died for me so that I may have life. So would you come? Would you come? And as the, as Gary leads us in our invitation, I just pray that this morning would be the day that you would come. Come to Jesus. Come find life. Be like the woman at the well who is coming and looking for life. And what she found was Jesus. Come find Jesus. So if you would, please stand as the invitation begins. If that's you, would you just come down? Would you come down front and just meet Matt? Matt will be here. I'll be here.